Chapter Eight, Part Two of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Eight, Part Two, The Shropshire and the Crusader. When everything was almost ready, Leon came in one day and said, "Shelley, what about improving your hair? Have you tried your wild grape sap yet?" Shelley said, "Why, goodness me!" We've been so busy getting Sally married, and my clothes made, I forgot all about that. Have you noticed the crock in passing? Is there anything in it? It was about half full once when I went by," said Leon. "I haven't seen it lately. Do please be a dear and look when you go after the cows this evening," said Shelley. "If there's anything in it, bring it up." "Do it yourself for want of me," the boy replied quite manfully. Quoted Leon from the little lord and the farmer, he was always teasing. I think you're mean as dirt if you don't bring it," said Shelley. Leon grinned, and you should have heard the nasty teasing way he said more of that same piece. Anger and pride are both unwise; vinegar never catches flies. I wondered she didn't slap him. You could see she wanted to. I can get it myself," she said angrily. "What will you give me to bring it?" Asked Leon, who never missed a chance to make a bargain. My grateful thanks. Are they not a proper reward? Asked Shelley. Thanks your foot," said Leon. Will you bring something pretty from Chicago for Susie's fall Christmas present? Everyone laughed, but Leon never cared. He liked Susie best of any of the girls, and he wanted everyone to know it. He went straight to her whenever he had a chance, and he'd already told her mother to keep all the other boys away. Because he meant to marry her when she grew up, and Widow Fall said that was fair enough, and she'd save her for him. So Shelley said she would get him something for Susie, and Leon brought the crock. Shelley looked at it sort of dubious, like tipped it, and stared at the dirt settled in the bottom, and then stuck in her finger and tasted it. She looked at Leon with a queer grin and said, "Smarty, smarty, think you're smart." She threw the creek water into the swill bucket. No one said a word, but Leon looked much sillier than she did. After he was gone, I asked her if she would bring him a Christmas present for Susie now, and she said she ought to bring him a pretty glass bottle labeled perfume, with hartshorn in it, and she would if she thought he'd smell it first. Shelley felt badly about leaving mother when she wasn't very well, but mother said it was all right. She had Candace to keep house, and May and me, and father, and all of us to take care of her. And it would be best for Shelley to go now and work as hard as she could, while she had the chance. So one afternoon, father took her trunk to the depot, and bought the tickets and got the checks. And the next day, Laddie drove to Groveville with father and Shelley, and she was gone. Right at the last, she didn't seem to want to leave so badly, but all of them said she must. Peter's cousin, who had gone last year, was to meet her, and have a room ready where she boarded if she could. And if she couldn't right away, then the first one who left, Shelley was to have the place, so they'd be together. There were eight of us left, counting Candace and Miss Amelia, and you wouldn't think a house with eight people living in it would be empty, but ours was. Everything seemed to wilt. The roses on the window blinds didn't look so bright as they had. Mother said the only way she could get along was to keep right on working. She helped Candace all she could, but she couldn't be on her feet very much. So she sat all day long and peeled peaches to dry, showed Candace how to jelly, preserve, and spice them, and peeled apples for butter and to dry, quantities more than we could use, 
but she said she always could sell such things, and with the bunch of us to educate yet, we'd need the money. When it grew cold enough to shut the doors, and have fire at night, first thing after supper all of us helped clear the table. Then we took our slates and books, and learned our lessons for the next day. And then father lined us against the wall, all in a row from laddie down, and he pronounced words, easy ones that divided into syllables nicely for me, harder for May, and so up until I might sit down. For Laddie, May, and Leon, he used the geography, the Bible, Roland's history, the Christian advocate, and the agriculturist. My, but he had them so they could spell. After that, as memory tests, all of us recited our reading lesson for the next day, especially the poetry pieces. I knew most of them, from hearing the big folks repeat them so often, and practice the proper way to read them. I could do Rienzi's address to the Romans, Casablanca, Gray's elegy, or Mark Antony's speech. But best of all, I liked lines to a waterfowl. When he was tired, if it were not bedtime yet, all of us, boys too, sewed rags for carpet and rugs. Laddie braided corn husks for the kitchen and outside doormats, and they were pretty, and very useful too, like the dog they got his head patted in McGuffey's second. Then they picked the apples. These had to be picked by hand, wrapped in soft paper, packed in barrels, and shipped to Fort Wayne. Where they couldn't reach by hand, they stood on barrels or ladders, and used a long-handled picker, so as not to bruise the fruit. Laddie helped with everything through the day, worked at his books at night, and whenever he stepped outside he looked in the direction of Pryor's. He climbed to the topmost limbs of the trees with a big basket, picked it full, and let it down with a long piece of clothesline. I loved to be in the orchard when they were working. There were plenty of summer apples to eat yet. It was fun to watch the men, and sometimes I could be useful by handing baskets or heaping up apples to be buried for us. One night father read about a man who had been hanged for killing another man, and they cut him down too soon, so he came alive, and they had to hang him over, and father got all worked up about it. He said the man had suffered death the first time, to all intents and purposes, so that fulfilled the requirements of the law, and they were wrong when they hanged him again. Laddie said it was a piece of bungling sure enough, but the law said a man must be hanged by his neck until he was dead, and if he weren't dead— why, it was plain he hadn't fulfilled the requirements of the law, so they were forced to hang him again. Father said that law was wrong. The man never should have been hanged in the first place. They talked and argued until we were all excited about it. And the next evening after school, Leon and I were helping pick apples, and when Father and Laddie went to the barn with a load, we sat down to rest, and we thought about what they said. "'Gee, that was tough on the man,' said Leon. "'But I guess the law is all right.' Of course he wouldn't want to die, and twice over at that. But I don't suppose the man he killed liked to die either. I think if you take a life, it's all right to give your own to pay for it. Leon, I said, sometime when you were fighting Absalom Saunders or Lou Wicks just awful, if you hit them too hard on some tender spot and kill them, would you want to die to pay for it? I wouldn't want to, but I guess I'd have to, said Leon. That's the law, and it's as good a way to make it as any. "'But I'm not going to kill anyone. "'I've studied my physiology hard to find all the spots that will kill. "'I never hit them behind the ear or in the pit of the stomach. "'I just black their eyes, bloody their snoots, "'and swat them on the chin to finish off with. "'Well, suppose they don't study their physiologies like you do, "'and hit you in the wrong place, and kill you. 
Would you want them hanged by the neck until they were dead to pay for it? I don't think I'd want anything if I were dead, he said. I wonder how it feels to die. Now that man knew. I'd like to be hanged enough to find out how it goes, and then come back and brag about it. I don't think it hurts much. I believe I'll try it. So Leon took the rope Laddie lowered the baskets with, and threw it over a big limb. Then he rolled up a barrel, and stood on it, and put my sunbonnet on with the crown over his face, for a black cap, and made the rope into a slip-noose over his head, and told me to stand back by the apple-tree, and hold the rope tight, until he said he was hanged enough. Then he stepped from the barrel. It jerked me toward him about a yard, and he came down smash on his feet. I held with all my might, but he was too heavy, and falling that way. So he went to trying to fix some other plan, and I told him the sensible thing to do would be for him to hang me, because he'd be strong enough to hold me, and I could tell him how it felt just as well. So we fixed me up like we had him, and when Leon got the rope stretched, he wrapped it twice around the apple tree, so it wouldn't jerk him as it had me, and when he said ready, I stepped from the barrel. The last thing I heard was Leon telling me to say when I was hanged enough. I was so heavy the rope stretched, and I went down until it almost tore off my head, and I couldn't get a single breath, so of course I didn't tell him, and I couldn't get on the barrel, and my tongue went out, and my chest swelled up, and my ears roared, and I kicked and struggled, and all the time I could hear Leon laughing, and shouting to keep it up, that I was dying fine, only he didn't know that I really was, and at last I didn't feel or know anything more. When I came to, I was lying on the grass, while father was pumping my arms, and Laddie was pouring creek water on my face from his hat, and Leon was running around in circles, clear crazy. I heard father tell him he'd give him a scutching he'd remember to the day of his death. But inasmuch as I had told Leon to do it, I had to grab father and hold to him tight as I could, until I got breath enough to explain how it happened. Even then I wasn't sure what he was going to do. After all that, when I tried to tell Leon how it felt, he just cried like a baby, and he wouldn't listen to a word, even when he'd wanted to know so badly. He said if I hadn't come back, he'd have gone to the barn and used the swing rope on himself. So it was a good thing I did, for one funeral would have cost enough, when we needed money so badly, not to mention how Mother would have felt to have two of us go at once, like she had before. And anyway, it didn't amount to so awful much. It was pretty bad at first, but it didn't last long, and the next day my neck was only a little blue and stiff, and in three days it was all over, only a rough place where the rope grained the skin as I went down. But I never got to tell Leon how it felt. I just couldn't talk him into hearing, and it was quite interesting, too. But still I easily saw why the man in the paper would object to dying twice, to pay for killing another man once. When the apples were picked, and the cabbage, beets, turnips, and potatoes were buried, some corn dried in the garret for new meal, pumpkins put in the cellar, the field corn all husked, and the butchering done. Father said the work was in such fine shape, with Laddie to help, and there was so much more corn than he needed for us, and the price was so high, and the turkeys did so well, and everything, that he could pay back what Mother helped him, and have quite a sum over. It was Thanksgiving by that time, and all of Winfield's, Lucy's, Sally and Peter, and our boys came home. We had a big time, all but Shelley. It was too expensive for her to come so far for one day. But Mother sent her a box with a whole turkey for herself and her friends, and cake, popcorn, nuts, and just everything that wasn't too drippy. 
Shelley wrote such lovely letters that mother saved them, and after we had eaten as much dinner as we could, she read them before we left the table. I had heard most of them, but I liked to listen again, because they sounded so happy. You could hear Shelley laugh on every page. She told about how Peter's cousin was waiting when the train stopped. They couldn't room together right away, but they were going to the first chance they had. Shelley felt badly because they were so far apart, but she was in a nice place, where she could go with the other girls of the school until she learned the way. She told about her room and the woman she boarded with, and what she had to eat. She wrote mother not to worry about clothes, because most of the others were from the country or small towns, and getting ready to teach, and lots of them didn't have nearly as many or as pretty dresses as she did. She told about the big building, the classes, the professors, and of going to public recitals where some of the pupils who knew enough played, and she was working her fingers almost to the bone so she could next year. She told of people she met, and how one of the teachers took a number of girls in his class to see a great picture gallery. She wrote pages about a young Chicago lawyer she met there, and only a few lines about the pictures. So father said, as that was the best collection of artwork in Chicago, it was easy enough to see that Shelley had been far more impressed with the man than she had been with the pictures. Mother said she didn't see how he could say such a thing like that about the child. Of course, she couldn't tell in a letter about hundreds of pictures, but it was easy enough to tell all about a man. Father got sort of spunky at that, and he said that it was mighty little that mattered most that could be told about a Chicago lawyer, and Mother had better caution Shelley to think more about her work and write less of the man. Mother said that would stop the child's confidences completely, and she'd think all the time about the man and never mention him again, so she wouldn't know what was going on. She said she was glad Shelley had found pleasing, refined friends, and she'd encourage her all she could in cultivating them. But of course, she'd caution her to be careful, and she'd tell her what the danger was. And after that, Shelley wrote and wrote. Mother didn't always read the letters to us, but she answered every one she got that same night. Sometimes she pushed the pen so she jabbed the paper, and often she smiled or laughed softly. I liked Thanksgiving. We always had a house full of company, and they didn't stay until we were tired of them, as they did at Christmas, and there was as much to eat. The only difference was that there were no presents. It wasn't nearly so much work to fix for one day as it was for a week, so it wasn't so hard on Mother and Candace, and Father didn't have to spend much money. We were wearing all our clothes from last fall that we could, and our coats from last winter to help out, but we didn't care. We had a lot of fun, and we wanted Sally and Shelley to have fine dresses, because they were in big cities where they needed them, and in due season, no doubt, we would have much more than they, because as May figured it, there would be only a few of us by that time, so we could have more to spend. That looked sensible, and I thought it would be that way too. We were talking it over coming from school one evening, and when we had settled it, we began to play dip and fade. That was a game we made up from being at church. And fall and spring were the only times we could play it, because then the rains filled all the ditches beside the road where the dirt was plowed up to make the bed higher, and we had to have the water to dip in and fade over. We played it like that, because it was as near as we could come to working out a song Isaac Thomas sang every time he got happy. He had a lot of children at home, and more who had died, from being half fed and frozen, mother thought, and he was always talking about meeting the poor innocents in heaven. And singing that one song. Every time he made exactly the same speech in meeting, 
It began like reciting poetry, only it didn't rhyme, but it sort of cut off in lines, and Isaac waved back and forth on his feet, and half sung it, and the rags waved too. But you just couldn't feel any thrills of earnestness about what he said, because he needed washing, and to go to work and get him some clothes and food to fill out his frame. He only looked funny and made you want to laugh. It took Emmanuel Ripley to raise your hair. I don't know why men like my father and the minister and John Dover stood it. They talked over asking Isaac to keep quiet numbers of times. But the minister said there were people like that in every church. They always came among the Lord's anointed, and it was better to pluck out your right eye than to offend one of them, and he was doubtful about doing it. So we children all knew that the grown people scarcely could stand Isaac's speech and prayer and song, and that they were afraid to tell him plain out that he did more harm than good. Every meeting about the third man up was Isaac, and we had to watch him wave and rant and go sing songy. Oh, brethren and sistering, ah! It delights my heart, ah, to gather with you. In this holy house of worship, ah, in his sacred word, ah. The Lord, ah, tells us that we are all his children, ah. And now, let me exhort you tonight, ah, as one that loves you, ah, to choose that good part that Mary chose, ah, that the world can neither give nor take away, ah. That went on until he was hoarse. Then he prayed, and arose and sang his song. Other men spoke where they stood. Isaac always walked to the altar, faced the people, and he was tired out when he finished, but so proud of himself, so happy, and he felt so sure that his efforts were worth a warm bed, sausage, pancakes, maple syrup, and coffee for breakfast, that it was mighty seldom he failed to fool someone else into thinking so too. And if he could, he wouldn't have to walk four miles home on cold nights with no overcoat. In summer, mostly, they let him go. Isaac always was fattest in winter, especially during revivals. But at any time, mother said he looked like a sheep's carcass after the buzzards had picked it. It could be seen that he was perfectly strong, and could have fed and clothed himself, and Mandy and the children, quite as well as our father did us, if he had wanted to work. For we had the biggest family of the neighborhood. So we children made fun of him, and we had to hold our mouths shut when he got up all tired and teary like, and began to quaver. Many dear children we know do stand, untune their harps in the better land, their little hands from each sound and string, bring music sweet while the angles sing, bring music sweet while the angles sing. We shall meet them again on that shore. We shall meet them again on that shore, with fairer face, an angel grace, each loved an old welcome us there. They used to mourn when the children died, unsaid good-bye at the riverside. They dipped their feet in the gliding stream, unfaded away like a lovely dream, unfaded away like a lovely dream. Then the chorus again, and then Isaac dropped on the front seat exhausted, and stayed there. Until some good hearted woman, mostly my mother, felt so sorry about his shiftlessness, she asked him to go home with us and warmed and fed him, and put him in the traveller's bed to sleep. The way we played it was this we stood together at the edge of a roadside puddle, and sang the first verse and the chorus, exactly as Isaac did. Then I sang the second verse, and May was one of the many dear children, 
and as I came to the lines, she dipped her feet in the gliding stream, and for fading away she jumped across. Now May was a careful little soul, and always watched what she was doing. So she walked up a short way, chose a good place, and when I sang the line, she was almost bird-like. She dipped and faded so gracefully. Then we laughed like dunces, and then May began to sway and swing, and drone through her nose for me. And I was so excited I never looked. I just dipped and faded on the spot. I faded all right, too, for I couldn't jump nearly across. And when I landed in pure clay that had been covered with water for three weeks, I went down to my knees in mud, to my waist in water, and lost my balance and fell backward. A man passing on horseback pried me out with the rail and helped me home. Of course, he didn't know how I happened to fall in, and I was too chilled to talk. I noticed May only said I fell, so I went to bed scorched inside with red pepper, and never told a word about dipping and fading. Leon whispered and said he bet it was the last time I would play that. So as soon as my coat and dress were washed and dried, and I could go back to school, I did it again, just to show him I was no cowardly calf. But I had learned from May to choose a puddle I could manage before I faded. End of chapter 8